We're going to pick up at the beginning of Galatians chapter 2. As we ask the question, is it time for a tune-up? Time for a tune-up. And when we think of tune-ups, we probably think about items such as engines or cylinders or maybe other automobile-type things such as oil changes, standard maintenance, oil changes or state inspections, tire rotations, or if you play music, instrument setups, uh, piano tunings. I, I have kids in school, those of you with kids or grandkids, there, there's maybe there's school sports physicals, there's doctor checkups for all of us, dental cleanings, colonoscopies. Right there, you have heard something spoken. A preacher has said a word in the pulpit which you've never heard, the word colonoscopy. Um, everything and everyone needs a little consistent maintenance, don't we? But what about things regarding our faith? what we believe or what we teach. The church has wrestled through these types of things down through the ages and, and still does to, to some degree. Our, our culture demands that the church reaffirm what she believes about Scripture on, on a consistent basis. We're constantly challenged. We're, we're constantly questioned. We're constantly called to defend our faith. What about Paul? Did Paul ever have to go in for a tune-up? Well, in Galatians, Paul, Paul has opened his letter, and Paul identifies himself as, as an apostle, not, not sent from men, but through the resurrected Jesus and God the Father. And, and Paul greets us. He, he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. And, and Paul is amazed that, that followers are so quickly deserting the Lord who called them by the grace of Christ that these followers are deserting and going to a different gospel. And, you know, there are some who are, like today, distorting the message of the gospel. And Paul then, then asks the question, Am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? For I would, I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel which is preached by me is not of human invention. I, I didn't make it up. I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus. Amen. And, and then Paul tells of how the Lord called him on the Damascus Road, transformed his life, and, and then Paul gives his backstory of his calling and, and his early ministry. Gives us some detail there in, in Galatians chapter 1 and and so this morning, Paul continues, as we look at Galatians 2, Paul's been going at this now a while, over a decade, and, and we start, we, we see that after an interval of 14 years, not a real long time, the older that we get, 14 years, Paul says, after that time, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus 
along also. And, and Paul says, it was because of a revelation that I went up. I took this trip because of a revelation, and I submitted. I met and I submitted to the church leaders there. I submitted the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. I'm going up there. I went up there to share with them what I'm preaching. The content of my sermons I'm going to have them check. And Paul says, I did this in private to, to these leaders who were of reputation for fear that somehow I might be running or I had run in vain. I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm trying to do my own thing. So, so what happens? The Lord, it's, it's, it's worded kind of, maybe kind of awkwardly from how we normally read, but, but what happens? The Lord gives Paul a revelation to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles to share the message of the gospel that he's been preaching now over a decade. And, and along with Paul comes Barnabas. And we met Barnabas several months ago in Acts. If you remember, he, he's an old friend to Peter. Yes, that Peter who walked with Jesus. To Peter and, and, and James, the brother of Jesus. And, and John, we've all heard of John. And, and Barnabas, he's a supporter of the, of the early church. He, he, they called him the son of encouragement. He, he had their back. And, and if you remember, he sold a piece of property to, to provide early financial support for the church. So, so he has financially backed the early church. Barnabas is a friend. And the presence of Barnabas with Paul, actually Barnabas is the one that told these guys early on, because, again, if you remember, Paul hated the church before he was called to ministry. Before the Lord turned him around, he hated the church, he attacked the church, they were afraid of Paul, and Barnabas says, it's okay, he's with me. Barnabas gives Paul some street cred, (laughs) some validation, And then there's a man named Titus who joins them, and more on Titus in just a moment. So Paul brings his witness, his testimony, before the apostles there in the Jerusalem church, and he does it in private. Doesn't bring a lot of drama, but he does it in private, not to cause a shake-up or a stir, but he does it out of respect to the church. He didn't come to cause dissension, but he, he he didn't come with a lot of fanfare, He has a reputation. He's not a rock star, but he has a reputation. But he comes in quietly, out of the respect for the church, out of respect for its leaders, and really out of respect for the Lord who has called him. You see, Paul loves the church. Paul is a church planner. And and he doesn't want to give the impression of being this lone wolf hero. The having, having the, the I work alone type of attitude, that, that kind of renegade lawman that we see so often in TV and in movies, you know, if it's John Wayne or Rambo or Batman, you know, I work alone. He's about the church. And, and so, so Paul, he wants them to hear the message he's been preaching. Paul is willing to come in for a tune-up. Paul is willing to come in to have some criticism. And this is what he says. Not even Titus, even though he's Greek, 
is compelled to be circumcised. Okay, so where in the world does this come from? Well, Titus is not a good little Jewish boy. He didn't grow up in a Jewish household. Titus has not been circumcised. He's Greek. One writer said he's a child of Aristotle, not of Moses. And, and, and so what happens, he's not from Jewish background, he's never been circumcised, and as we've seen, circumcision is still a big talking point for the early Christian converts in the Jewish faith. These early church members coming from the Jewish background, they prefer that anyone coming to the Christian faith be circumcised. Crassly speaking, it would be like a mark of being in the club. They think that everybody ought to have the same mark. Uh, those a part of the Hebrew faith community, they've already been circumcised. Yes, most of them have come to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they've studied in the Law and the Prophets, but they feel that any convert must first come through that tradition of Moses. Kind of like, well, if I had to do it, you should do it too. Heaven knows we wouldn't want to look at church that way, but sometimes we as people do that. You know, it kind of boils down to preference, I think, sometimes. And, and we talked about that just a few weeks ago, this idea of preference. The, the church does similar things today. We don't get hung up on circumcision, <laughs> but, but what are some things which we have the propensity on which to get hung up, well, we, we talked, I shared with you from personal experience that, that in the last 30 years of church work, how, how some folks get bent out of shape about worship styles or different kinds of music or different kinds of experiences or, or dress attire. I told you about that, that old friend of mine who, who loved Jesus and loved me and loved the church, but he told me, he said, you know, I think that God hears you better when you pray if you have a coat and tie on. I wanted to say, where does it say that in Scripture? Again, this idea of breaking from the tradition of routine. Well, Paul says all this about Titus not being circumcised. This was a concern for some because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy on our freedom, which, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. Again, kind of strangely worded, but these false brethren, ones we've seen, we've talked about in First Peter and Second Peter in the letter of Jude, these wolves in sheep's clothing who come into the church with intent to undermine. They come in to, to undermine the witness of the fellowship. These aren't Jewish converts to the Christian faith. These are non-believers, and they really want nothing to do with Jesus. They see Jesus as competition, and they don't want to build up. They, they want to come in and spy. But Paul says, we did not yield in subjection to these false brothers even for an hour, even for a minute, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of considerable reputation, and we're talking about Peter and, and John and James, the brother of Jesus and the pastor there of the Jerusalem church, Paul says this, what they were makes no difference to me. 
God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. If you, if you look at that, it sounds like, okay, Paul was so respectful and wanted to come in and preach to these guys and, and have them kind of check his work, and he wanted to do it kind of quietly and, and very respectful. And all of a sudden you see here, he, he says that God shows no favoritism. Who they are makes no difference to me at all. It sounds like he's kind of being a smart aleck. He sounds disrespectful. Didn't he first come out of respect? Yes. Well, is he now being an arrogant, pompous, you-know-what? No, not at all. You see, Paul met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on the Damascus Road. Paul is qualified as an apostle. And if you remember Paul, Paul was trained as a Pharisee. Paul... The last time we were together, I told you this. Paul knows the law and the prophets backwards and forwards and forwards and back. He knows what it says, and he sees the Lord has revealed himself that Jesus is the revelation of every promise there in the law and the prophets. So Paul knows this. Paul has been given this by Jesus, and so Paul's... Paul has this authority. Paul preaches Jesus as the fulfillment of all, of all the Scriptures. And, and Paul's understanding of the Gospel, his, his presentation of the claims that, that Jesus makes for salvation, Paul stands toe-to-toe with these other church leaders. It simply is what it is. He's not being disrespectful to Peter or James or John. He just says, what I'm preaching is exactly what they're preaching, and I am no different than them. Peter and John and James are no more a favorite of God than I am. It simply is what it is. Paul has no need for a tune-up. He's come in, he's willing to be checked, but he's fine. And then Paul continues, he says, seeing that I've been entrusted with the gospel to, to the Gentiles, those uncircumcised, just as Peter has been commissioned to go to the, to the Jews, the circumcised, and recognizing the grace that's been given to me by the Lord, and James, the brother of Jesus there, and Cephas, Peter, I don't know why he's called Cephas here, different writers have said different things, but James and Cephas and John, who are... Who are, are their reputation clarifies them, sets them up as pillars of the church. We've all used that terminology before, talking about some of our saints in the church. We, we've referred to them as pillars. Well, this, this is where it comes from. That's biblical language when we call someone a pillar of the church. We see that here in Galatians. Paul is saying, they've given to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we would go to the Gentiles and they're going to go to the Jews. And and this right hand of fellowship, one writer says that this hand clasp is simply the formal assurance between these two parties that they regard each other as friendly partners in a common undertaking. So Paul or Peter or Barnabas or John or Titus, or James, they're all on the same team. They're all on the same preaching team. They may preach a little differently, but they're all used by God to preach 
the claims of salvation. They're preaching Jesus as revealed through, through Scripture. And then Paul says, they only ask us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. And we've seen Paul do this already, willing to go and help the poor and the afflicted. In Acts chapter 11, you may remember that, that Barnabas and Paul, they, they take a love gift, a love offering, a financial offering to a church in Judea, which will be facing impending disaster. So, what does this mean and why does it matter? I ask you that every week, every time we're together. What does this mean and why does it, why does it matter? Why does it matter? What is Scripture saying to us? A revelation from the Lord sends Paul to Jerusalem to meet with these apostles, in essence, to compare the gospel message which he's been preaching for 14 years. <laughs> Over a decade, he's been preaching this, and now the Lord sends him to have his work checked. It seems bizarre, but it communicates a great deal to us. Why does this matter in 2022? Well, it has to do with the content of the message. You see, like in Paul's day, our day is very similar in the fact that we got lots of Gospels floating around. We got lots of, lots of stuff floating around, talking about Jesus and God and eternity and all this kind of stuff. It's what I call the, the problem of guitar shop theology. What do I mean? We all have opinions about politics, the state of the country and the world, and we all also have opinions about things of a spiritual nature, which, yes, in a lot of cases, are things of the spiritual nature. You see how they can be informed by politics or the state of the country and the world. And our view of God and His Word, there's always the temptation for it to be shaped by our worldview and our world climate. And, and be it folks strumming around in a music store, that's what I, I use this as an example because a, a good friend of mine, he and I, when we were in seminary in the 90s, we'd go to one of the local guitar shops in Louisville and some free afternoon, we'd go play on guitars, and somehow discussions would always come up about Jesus and salvation. And it was interesting because, you know, generally everybody kind of had his or her own thing worked out. Well, as long as I do this or that, I'm okay. Didn't hear much about, well, I have a sin problem. It was always, well, if, you know, I'm okay. Okay, I'm okay if you're okay. Well, whatever. Often these discussions... They circle around the search for a quick fix, spiritually speaking. Because we all have a spiritual need. And for God's people, our worldview should be seen through the lenses of God's truth, His Word. But so often is the case, the temptation is that our view of God and His Word is shaped and determined by our worldview. You see, God's Word is where we get a precise description of God. 
His Son, Jesus, and, and mankind's need for salvation in Him. We learn our true state, our sinful nature. We see that in His Word. But so often is the case, what happens, our view of God and His Word is shaped and determined by other voices. And so Paul, coming in to have his homework checked, in essence, this is important because the early churches, founded by Paul and Barnabas, are built on the doctrine of Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which really have a built-in audience with those who are these circumcised Jews. If you remember, the first places that Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel of Jesus was in the synagogue. People who knew God's word but yet had not seen the revelation of Jesus and Paul and Barnabas would come and the Holy Spirit through them would open the eyes of these folks to see Jesus as, as the full revelation. But see now, Paul and Barnabas, in preaching in communities and building churches in now non-Jewish regions, they have to explain the concept of the reality of sin. The need for salvation in a culture which is not necessarily Hebrew God-focused. Kind of like our culture today. And Paul and Barnabas have to break it down to basics. On this Independence Day weekend, we, we think about these things of history and freedom and and by and large, we've shifted from our Judeo-Christian foundations. Historically, we, we've, we've had biblically informed margins to our American society for a few centuries, but, but that's changing. That's shifted. But we are still in a world where the main focus is one's self on a journey of seeking acceptance from something or someone, or some group. It's a journey of acceptance, and all of us are on it. But it's one thing to seek acceptance in a cancel-ready culture, and it's another thing entirely, another journey entirely, to seek acceptance from the Lord. These are two vastly different things, two vastly different ballgames. And both actually have their own standards. One standard, however, is, is always shifting with trends and culture as we find new information and new shifts and new this. And, and, and so the kind of the rules keep changing as, as society continues on and then the game kind of snakes around and changes. And rules are always in flux. But the other is an unchanging standard, and that's Scripture. And that's the beauty of, of an unchanging eternal God. And, and one ultimately cannot follow both standards all the way to the end. 
because one does, does not enable the other. One does not edify the other, and one does not ultimately make room for the other. It's a question. What are some things on which we base salvation? <laughs> Jake, what do you mean? I thought we just answered that. Well, we did. <laughs> but I want to I ask this question. What are some things which we think about on which we base salvation? You see, access to God is one of the most misunderstood concepts out there. And that's why so many folks have their own concepts of trying to understand God and eternity, kind of like what I was telling you about guitar shop theology. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a thought. Everybody's trying to think about God and eternity, you know, when you die. And we, we hear longtime church folks talk about the necessity of baptism. Baptism saves you. We hear folks talk about, well, he or she is a good person. We hear folks talk about, well, he or she will help anybody out the best he or she can. And see, these are all good things. They're great things. These behaviors can all be manifestations of a spirit-filled life. Thanks be to God for those things. If one has turned from sin and turned to Jesus. That's the first step. Amen. These behaviors, as good as they are, don't earn our standing before the Lord. They never have. It's only in the recognition of our own sin when we realize that we need help. That old phrase, you've heard me say it, you've heard others say it, that the ground is, is level at the foot of the cross. We are all the same. We all have a desperate need for salvation that only Jesus can fill. Amen. He's the only one. We all need a Savior. And, and, and we realize that it's a matter of surrender. It's surrendering to, to Jesus as our Lord. And surrender is hard. No one likes to surrender. <laughs> but on this Independence Day weekend, to feel the freedom of forgiveness of sin, that begins when we feel the freedom of surrendering to Jesus. And we, and we have to ask ourselves, is it time for a tune-up?